BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Josh Marshall podcast. I'm your host, Kate Riga. We're bringing you a special pod today in addition to our main weekly one with some special guests. And I'm joined right now by uh, my esteemed colleague, Josh Kavinsky, investigative reporter here at TPM. Hi, Josh. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Um, And we just had a really great conversation. Uh, Josh, why don't you tell us about who our our last surprise guest was today and and why you wanted to have him on? Sure. So we had um, a Russian, independent Russian journalist on today named Mikhail Zigar. Um, He you know, has spent the last 20 or so years covering both Russia and Ukraine. Um, he also founded an independent television, television station called TV Doge or TV Brain um, that has been suppressed pretty heavily by the Kremlin recently. Um, and he's kind of one of the few independent Russian journalists who can offer, in, sort of claims to offer in a credible way, inside accounts of the Kremlin's decision making. Uh, and he just came out with a book called War and Punishment which goes over the lead up to the war in Ukraine. It actually starts in the Middle Ages. It gives you a deep history of Ukraine's independence, how that ends up leading through the Putin administration, Putin's leadership into uh, the invasion in February of 2022 last year. One thing that was interesting about it to me is that the book largely deals with the interplay um, of Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. So you have coverage in the book of the 2016 election interference, about how Putin comes to see the U.S. as a threat to him domestically, not just to his own regime, but also via um, U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine and how both Ukraine and Russia end up recognizing that, um, you know, there are two political parties in the U.S. and they have to figure out how to live with both of them and maybe manipulate both of them um, to get what they want. Uh, so that's kind of an overview of what was interesting to me about him. Yeah, and we we hit on all these topics in our conversation. We get into really kind of interesting stuff about how Putin sees uh, the Republican versus the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, his what he might do re twenty twenty four. How he's kind of banking on Trump's reelection. So all that good stuff we get into. Um, I think it was a really great conversation. Unfortunately, I was bitten by the technical difficulties bug. So I was not able to partake in the conversation, but we were fully covered because uh, Josh did a a really great job. I read a lot of interviews with Mikhail. His questions were by far the best. And our listeners will remember that um, Josh came to us from the Kiev Post, so has, uh, you know, a, a a lot of professional experience uh, with Ukraine. So it's a great conversation, a really good kind of um, added bonus that the focus is a little more on some kind of more foreign affairs stuff than our, our usual pod cover. So I think our listeners will love it. Um, and yeah, enjoy. Great. So Mikhail, thanks for coming on. Um, my question is, you know, from Putin's standpoint, why does he have this growing fixation on Ukraine throughout his tenure as leader of Russia? Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Kate, for having me. Um, yeah, you're right. That's a very personal issue for President Putin. And 
my sources in his inner circle claim that literally from the beginning of his presidency in uh, year 2000, uh, he kept on repeating uh, during all the internal uh, meetings in Kremlin uh, the same phrase, we must do something about Ukraine, otherwise we're going to lose it. And um, especially it became very... Um, the, the turning point uh, was probably year 2004, the moment when orange so-called Orange Revolution happened in Ukraine. Um, it was very important for, for Putin that moment to uh, install pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin candidate uh, as the, the new Ukrainian president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, and he was trying really hard. He was uh, almost campaigning himself to promote Yanukovych. Uh, but actually, all the all the money allocated to that campaign were wasted. They were stolen by by Russian spin doctors, by a lot of by a huge crowd of Russian um, political technologists uh, sent to Ukraine. And when Yanukovych lost, and the Democratic candidate Yushchenko won, uh, all those people could not explain to Vladimir Putin that actually we have stolen the money. <laughs> that, that that's why. Uh, Okay. We were defeated during that election, so they had to to uh, create um, uh, a legend, and they uh, they tried to explain it with uh, the American con conspiracy. They they said yes, yes, Americans uh, were supporting their own candidate, and they spent much more money. They invested in uh, in, uh, in candidate Yushchenko much more, so that's why we lost. And that, that was the beginning of Putin's obsession and Putin's um, paranoia. He, he truly believes that uh, there is anti-Russian conspiracy and that U Ukraine is uh, the Trojan horse, that uh, Ukraine is the main uh, instrument against Russia uh, in the Western game. So that really comes out through the book, though, is that every time Putin suffers a setback in Ukraine, uh, he thinks that this is the product of an of a you know American kind of conspiracy that's directed at Russia. You know, when he first came to office, did he have this idea of the United States as you know a country that was trying to conspire against him? And did he see Ukraine as, as you put it, a Trojan horse, or did, is this you know why did that come to be? How did that come to be? Actually, not really. In the beginning, he was he was much more um, he always respected the power and george w bush seemed to him to be the person he really admired he he thought that that uh, george w bush was the mighty leader he called him a uh, dictator of the world um and he really didn't uh, expect uh, george bush to um to leave um white house so quickly um, and when when uh, Hurricane Katrina happened and uh, Bush's approval ratings collapsed, that was uh, that was a, quite a surprise for Vladimir Putin. But that was a lesson for him that um, no matter how confident you are and no, no matter how powerful you might um, seem, you you should always be very careful and uh, you cannot lose your power. And actually, that's what he's doing. He knows that that he he won't let the power go and ironically he he has chosen ukraine to be um the leverage be the instrument that keeps him in power for all for so many years uh, he um he felt that um, he felt the effectiveness of that tool in um 2014 when his approval ratings were really poor and uh, most people in Russia wanted him out. There were huge protest rallies against him uh, starting year, uh, 
2011, uh, but it was a very unex unexpected move uh, from his side. He uh, occupied Crimea, and uh, he he created that super wave of uh, historical patriotism that um, they made him very popular. Actually, he invented uh, the slogan "May uh, Make Russia Great Again." Uh, before it uh, it became popular in this country, mm, but yeah, sure. that's that, that, that's what what he's doing. But yeah, and so before we get there, I wanted to go back to two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It's the end of the Bush administration. He, you know, at the NATO summit, NATO declares that Ukraine and Georgia will become um, members of NATO at some point down the line. You know, I think at one point you write in the book that, as you just said, with Hurricane Katrina. Um, at some point, Putin kind of feared Bush. He thought, as you said, he was like this military emperor, military dictator. And then he, at some point, realizes that he's weak. Um, but how does Putin react to this declaration that Ukraine will join? I mean, is that something that he, uh, I mean, I guess it seems like in the logic it would follow that he would respect, or is it something that just enrages him? Yeah, thank you for, for that, that question. That's really symbolic and really important, because that was the first moment when Putin uh, publicly said, that if Ukraine joins NATO, uh, it will join NATO without Crimea and the East. He uh, he told that to to President Bush. Uh, that was April two thousand eight in the NATO summit in Bucharest. So so that means that uh, back in two thousand and eight, he had in mind that perspective of um, um, splitting Ukraine. Actually, he tried splitting U U Ukraine back in two thousand and four. Um, when the Orange Revolution was just uh, in the beginning, uh, that time it was ob obvious that uh, nothing was prepared and like, there was no um, no support uh, within the Ukrainian population. Um, and but but after that, he he kept in mind that idea that, that probably Ukrainian statehood might be destroyed and Ukrainian could, could uh, Ukraine should be separated into, into uh, different uh, new states or quasi states, and he publicly threatened with that uh, to uh, to President Bush back in uh, 2008. And actually, he um, obviously he had that idea by um, 2013. And uh, according to all source, sources in Kremlin, they they were preparing um, some some kind of uh, uh, they they didn't want to start the invasion. They thought that it uh, would be very very easy to split Ukraine and to to have the whole east of Ukraine, including Kharkiv and uh, and Donbas and even Odessa, um, after. Uh, after the the presidency of uh, Viktor Yanukovych would end, um, so so they they were kind of preparing for for another revolution, uh, but um, unfortunately for them and and fortunately for Ukraine, they uh, they could not uh, fulfill it because in uh, 2014 the revolution of dignity happened in Ukraine, and so mo most of their plans um, were were not designed to, to be fulfilled. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wanted to go back a little bit before 2014. You mentioned the 2011 uh, protests earlier. Um, you know, and my question was just, when does Putin begin to see the United States as a domestic threat to his regime, not just a foreign policy threat, but as something that could, you know, be a problem for him within Russia? Oh, you know, that that started um, 
I think that started after Orange Revolution because Orange Revolution in Ukraine in in uh, 2004 was viewed as a potential model for Russia. So mm-hmm. if uh, if uh, there was a popular revolt uh, in Ukraine and so easily uh, the, pop- the population, the, the society uh, managed to overthrow the, the authoritarian regime and um, to get the democratically elect uh, president in power, right. uh, that was a poten- that was viewed as a potential threat to Russia. And uh, that that time uh, there was a uh, Kremlin strategist named Vladislav Surkov uh, who cre- who started creating that theory of Russia as a besieged fortress. Um, so that that that's a very long idea, and uh, they started preparing Russia for that. Uh, some kind of um, American pre-orchestrated Orange Revolution uh, since that time, and and he, he uh, in the beginning he was really he was really scared because he thought that that President Bush was almighty, and mm-hmm. uh, there was no chance to um, to resist that uh, inevitable uh, Orange Re- Revolution in Russia. Then after. Uh, departure of President Bush, he uh, he has become much more self-confident. And um, you probably re- remember uh, there was a very famous Munich speech uh, delivered by uh, Vladimir Putin in 2007, exactly the moment when uh, it was obvious for him that, that Bush is leaving and that um, no orange revolution, no any kind of revolution uh, could, could happen in Russia. But he he became um, much more vulnerable in in 2011 um, when the real protest rally started in Russia, and that that was something he he could not expect because he was pretty sure that uh, during the first decade of his presidency uh, he had become really popular, and he expected uh, Russian middle class. He expected. Um, the most successful part of Russian, the most prosperous part of Russian population, to be very loyal to him, because in his mindset that was him who gave Russians everything. That was him uh, whom Russians should be thankful to for the most prosperous decade in Russian history. But on the contrary, the the middle class of Russia, the um, um, all businessmen or intellectuals. Uh, in many different Russian cities, in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, uh, didn't want him back. That, that was the, the, the short period when uh, Putin was serving as prime minister, not as, as a president. And a lot of people were opposed to him uh, running again. And uh, there were huge rallies uh, in all Russia's big cities. And that was, that was a moral catastrophe for Putin because he understood that he was betrayed by those people who had to be his power base, and that, that uh, and at the same time he he did not believe that those protest rallies were um, spontaneous. He thought that they were organized by the Americans, and he blamed personally Hillary Clinton, uh, who was Secretary of State. That, so that why does moment, he blame, why does he blame Hillary Clinton personally? She was Secretary of State. So if if there were protest rallies in Russia, probably. Uh, he he thought that there the should be a Department of State to organize that. At the same time, there was um, the, that there was only one proof of that. 
that uh, that year, um, Department uh, State Department uh, um, gave a grant to one of Russian NGOs that was that worked um, to to ensure that that the the election process could not be rigged, and uh, they they had a huge network of um, of observers. Um, over the, the electoral process all over Russia. And that fact um, was a proof for President Putin that, okay, if Americans are helping the NGO that doesn't want Russian uh, elections to be rigged, that means that they are, are undermining the, the electoral process. And that means that uh, they are um, financing the opposition and the, the protest rallies in Russia, and that that was the beginning of all uh, of all the of all the long story, and that's why it was absolutely um, unacceptable for for Vladimir Putin uh, if Hillary Clinton uh, was was running for the president. So that's exactly where I, I want next question I wanted to ask, which is that in 2016, as we all know, big scandal erupts because Russian hackers um, go after the DNC. They attack essentially the Hillary campaign through this hack and dump operation. Um, so, what's your understanding of the decision making that led to that decision to interfere in the 2016 election by Putin? I mean, how much was it motivated by this like personal vendetta that you describe in the book against Hillary Clinton? You know, it, it's it's a mixture. It's, it's it's a mixture of everything. It's a mixture of personal vendetta. It's um, a mixture of uh, the long time prejudice against Americans and especially about American de Democrats, because the, there was some kind of irrational belief in, um, in Russian political elite for many decades that it's much easier to deal with Republicans than with Democrats, because Republicans are reasonable people. Uh, they're very pragmatic, and you can make deal with them. Uh, and it's, it's much harder uh, to, to make deals with Democrats, because they are uh, pretending that they are uh, principal people and they uh, they put values above the pragmatic interests. Uh, so yes, it was a mixture of, um, of of different factors. At the same time, by by that moment, um, they, I mean, Kremlin has created the new international strategy, and uh, um, the main objective of that strategy was that. That chaos is probably that chaos globally is probably the most um, beneficial um, atmosphere for Russia because um, they, they were. I, I remember it perfectly well. I was speaking to a very high-ranking official from Kremlin uh, back in 2013. It was a very peaceful year, very prosperous before annexation of Crimea, um, and nothing. Nothing seemed to be wrong. It was like uh, uh, we had an illusion that the future was bright, uh, economic uh, development, everything was perfect. But the uh, the high-ranking official I, I, I was speaking to, he was he was very sad, and he he, but he was very sincere, and he said that in in any kind of competition uh, against the West, we are, we are doomed to lose. We cannot win economically because we are, we, we don't have any advantages. Uh, if we are playing, uh, if there is a fair play, if we are playing chess with them, we are, we had, we have to lose. So the only way is just to break the rules. We should, we should start another game. We should just throw away the, 
the, uh, the, uh, the chessboard. And that's what they started doing with occupation of Crimea and, and then globally. Uh, actually, um, the, the chaos uh, uh, during the American elections was the part of that strategy. So that's really interesting. And I think the other thing that comes up in the book and that we've seen is this focus on domestically, at least within Russia, on you know traditional values, right wing kind of concepts. But also sometimes when you see Putin give these speeches or people around him, he'll talk about what I think to an American audience seems like uh, American culture war things. So to talk about like, you know, a hundred genders or cancel culture, all of these sort of tropes that um, you see American conservatives discuss. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think a lot of people look at that with, at least in the U.S., look at that with confusion. I mean, wh why does that end up forming a part of uh, his speeches, his, the kind of like message he's putting out to the world? You know, that's, that, that's the same the same strategy I've, uh, I've already mentioned. Uh, he realized that uh, if there is an ally in the West for, for him, that would be the conservative movement globally. Okay. Actually, he, he never used uh, that kind of, um, of messages domestically before, uh, before that shock of protest rallies of uh, 2011, 2012. And he has become much more conservative uh, after that because he, um, he started uh, trying to, to appeal to a completely new audience. And that's not even Russian audience. That's that's the, the international conservative audience. And uh, for, I'll give you one example. Uh, sure. Last week, just it, be, uh, it didn't happen many years ago. That happened last week. Last week, President Putin signed the legislation that, that bans um, any transgender transition, that, that outlaws transgender people in Russia. That's uh, probably one of the most horrible uh, legislations that, um, that was implemented. Uh, during the the recent years uh and it's very surprising because there was there was no public discussion about that and th that question is not an issue for russian population uh i'm probably i should be ashamed to say that but um, russian society doesn't care about that because uh, there are there is a war there are so many uh really um sharp issues discussed in Russia and the the issue of transgender people was um, was not something and is not something many people discuss it was not discussed on television there were, there is no public campaign pro and against, or against uh, the only reason for that legislation is that uh, it's a message for American conservatives. It's like he's trying to appeal to the American audience, not to Russian audience, because he he thinks that the the conservative movement in uh, in the United States is his potential ally, and he re he's really expecting Donald Trump to be back uh, in the White House, and he he thinks that that's the way out for him, the way out of the war. He's sure that if Donald Trump is reelected. That would be the the happy ending for, for for his aggression against Ukraine because he's definitely stuck. At the same time, he thinks that uh, the time is on his side, and once uh, there is no international support for for Ukraine, uh, he's going to be much better. And to ensure that um, not only Donald Trump is on his side, but uh, the conservative uh, Americans, uh, he's trying to. Uh, to follow this agenda.
What do you think the likelihood is of some kind of interference in the 2024 U.S. election coming from Russia? Um, I'm sure that, that they are going to try, but at the same time, they know that uh, that if the interference is obvious, it would only hurt Donald Trump. So um, I think that there might might be some other uh, operations, some, some other provocations to much more to cause uh, chaos than to support personally Donald Trump or any other candidate. That's interesting. And so before we go, because I know we're running out of time, I wanted to draw people's attention to another part of the book, which is just that you had a lot of interviews with Ukrainian leaders, with Zelensky, with people around him. And it gives it's amazing reporting. It gives like a very good kind of sense Thank of how you. they think about uh, you know Russia and the U.S. But you know, for our audience, one thing that's interesting was the you know 2019 uh, scandal that led to Trump's first impeachment, in which he tried to sort of extort the Ukrainian government into investigating Burisma and Hunter Biden and the firing of the Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin. Um, and you write about this in the book. So I'm curious, though, when you know Rudy Giuliani first goes to Ukraine, he has, or he sends people to Ukraine, he starts talking to Ukrainian officials about getting them to start these investigations. What's the reaction from Zelensky and his administration? How do they respond to that? Uh, you know, yeah, that was very interesting uh, coincidence, because probably if if that, that happened to any other country or to any other government, um, the response might have been much more quick and positive. Because yes, when when you've got that delicate uh, um, requirement from uh, from the White House, from or from from the representative of from the um, messenger of, of White House, uh, you you have to say yes quickly. But um, Zelensky's administration was just just elected. They had no political experience before. They were a group of show business people. They were film producers. They they uh, they cared about their image, and they were really afraid of of making uh, mistakes quickly. They were very cautious about. Uh, about anything, so that's that made them think twice before uh, making any choice, and they they were really um, probably it's fair to say that they were scared by by Giuliani's proposal, and they were really scared of alienating um, um, a lot of uh, important American political players, and at at the same time, it was really important for Vladimir Zelensky that that he. Uh, he came from from show business, and he knew the model of ideal president because he was playing the ideal president uh, in his TV, TV series Servants of the People. So he obviously knew that uh, what was happening reminded him of uh, of the worst of the plots of his um, of his series, and he knew that the decent president should not act like that. So that's why uh, Zelensky preferred to. To abstain, to distance, um, to distance him, himself from from Giuliani, and not to respond because he he knew that something really bad is happening, and and uh, the problems are coming. He should not uh, um, get involved with these problems. All right, I understand. So I think before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you one last question, um, which is just how do you think the war is likely to end, and what role do you think uh, you know? The U.S. Or what rather, what role do you think Putin sees the U.S. having in bringing the war in Ukraine to an end? 
uh, as I said, put in things that that's going to be very uh, lucky ending for him if Donald Trump is back in the White House. Uh, at the same time, we see that um, that Putin's regime is not that stable as it seemed to be um, two years ago. Uh, the recent Prigozhin's mutiny uh, is a clear indication that uh, the system is not stable, that Putin is obviously out of control. Uh, he thinks that, that he controls everything, but for, for many representatives of, uh, of his elite, of his bureaucracy, it's obvious that he cannot control even his own puppets. And uh, according to to the forecasts of uh, uh, some, some of my sources, his days might be numbered. And uh, probably he um, he's not going to be a president within a year or two years. Okay, Mikhail. Um, I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, really, thank you for your time. Um, the book is called War and Punishment. Um, and yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come join us. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Kate. So that was our conversation. Thank you so much, Mikhail, for joining us. Um, let us know if you liked this. You know, we may do more kind of intersperse our kind of our main episode with some some bonus pods when there are people we particularly want to talk to or something we want to talk about. As always, if you liked what you heard, become a member. That's the, the economic engine that lets us record this pod. And we'll see you next week with our, our regular scheduled pod. Thanks for listening.